Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. This letter is named Ephesus because Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians. And Ephesus was an important big city in the ancient world in a place called Asia Minor that is now called Turkey. So for the next 15 weeks, I'm just going to show you pictures of me and my daughter. We're just going to be here in Ephesus, just slowly going through and painstakingly detail of our visit to this ancient city. Just kidding, fam. We are going to focus on what Paul talked about. We learned a couple cool things we'll throw in there. But the point of the Ephesian letter is that the gospel changes everything. It was a new congregation, a young congregation, because all the churches were new and young then. But he's telling them that the gospel truly can change every single thing about your life. And every chapter is just laced with this beautiful, detailed explanation of what God has done in Christ to save us. And what's that mean for everything else? What's it mean for how we live? What's it mean for how we do church? What's it mean for ethnic reconciliation? What's it mean for witnessing to others? What's it mean for our dating life? What's it mean for our married life? What's it mean for choosing not to get married? What's it mean for parenting? What's it mean for work? This letter hits it all and more. So we're going slow and we're diving deep. We'll be here for 15 weeks of preaching, but an entire year in community groups going even deeper. I want us to eat live and love the book of Ephesians. As some scholars have said, pound for pound, word for word, it's the meatiest, thickest, most beautiful book of the Bible. And I want it for you, church. And I want it for me and my soul to trust and pray and ask God to say, Lord, would you change me? Would you let the gospel, what you have done, God, not what I do, but what you have done, change everything about me from the inside out? Ephesians 2.19 makes this explicit claim for us. Look at this. It's like a vision statement for us. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household. The claim of the book of Ephesians, the claim of the Bible is that once you were a stranger to God, stranger to the people of God, that you are a people of a foreign land that didn't speak the language, didn't know the customs, that honestly just didn't belong. But the thing that made you belong wasn't you getting your act together. It was God dying for us in Christ that the gospel would change everything to take you from an outsider who doesn't belong to an insider who belongs forever. That he would make you from a stranger to a citizen. He'd make you from a foreigner to a saint that belongs in the house of God. And that is where we're going, and that is the prayer of what we are doing. Now, Paul, you may not be familiar with Christianity. Paul was an early missionary in the church, and he might be the greatest missionary ever in the church. And he starts his letter like this. Look at verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He calls the people there saints. And that's a word we get thrown around a lot in the South. We've got a football team. we got all sorts of stuff. But a saint is someone called by God, set apart for his holy use. That's a big thing to get called. And the thing is, it's not just Ephesus who are saints. That if you are in Christ, you are also a saint. 
Paul is teaching them and teaching us to live out our identity of who we actually are. That if you're in Christ, you are a saint before God. That's how he sees you. And the saints, as that scripture says, are faithful. If you wonder, am I a Christian? Because it's easy in the South to trick ourselves into being a Christian, to be a cultural Christian or grow up a Christian or something like that. A Christian, if you're a Christian, then you're a saint. If you're a saint, then you are faithful. And it's a question to ask. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. But it does mean if you look at your life, you generally want to be faithful to Jesus. That's the trajectory of where your life is going. And Paul isn't saying this as a test. He isn't saying it as a trick. He isn't saying it to make you doubt yourself. But he's just stating the plain reality where he doesn't have to explain it to just say, hey, if you belong to Jesus, that means you live for Jesus. That you're faithful to him. Not perfect by no means. But the power to be faithful to Jesus, the power that makes you a saint, if you are living faithfully, you have no reason to boast. No reason to boast. You're not better than anyone. Instead, the power to live from Jesus and for Jesus, it comes from God alone. And that's where Paul starts this letter. In verse 3, he tells us this. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So praise God. Why? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen to what Paul is saying. We are saints not because we behave properly, though faithfulness is evidence of our sainthood. Faithfulness is not the cause of our sainthood. Our sainthood is caused because God has blessed us. God has acted on our behalf to make us saints and saints who are faithful. That's where our faithfulness becomes evidence. Now, we say the word bless all the time. Bless your heart, bless this meal, bless this, bless that. And it's easy to kind of miss what blessing means. And it is, eugolo is the word. And that literally means you, good, logo, speak, or word. So it means to speak well of, to say good words, or here, to receive favor from. And so he's saying when God's blessing us, the higher one, blessing the lower one. It means God has given us favor. God has given us spiritual goodness in these ways. And it's kind of a confusing sentence. So we're going to break it down a little bit more. And Paul, like a good reporter, like a news reporter, kind of gives us the how, the what, the when, the where of these spiritual blessings. Because he used the word bless three times in one, one little verse. So take a look with me. Who blesses us? Well, who God the Father blesses us. What's he bless us with? Every spiritual blessing. All right, what's that mean? Well, how's he do it? Well, he does it in Christ. Where's these blessings coming from or where do they exist? In the heavenly places. It's like, well, what? Okay, there's a lot going on there in the who, what, when, where, hi. And the when is the most confusing part for most of us because verse four gives us the when. And surprising, take a look at verse four. God blessed us with these spiritual blessings even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Church, God's when for blessing you to become a saint, to become holy and blameless was actually before creation. 
was before the world existed, before the stars that hang over the sky at night, before anything moved an inch, that God chose us in him, that we would have a distinct purpose, that God would make us saints to be holy and blameless before him. And for sure, if you're in Christ, you're growing in a holiness and growing in a blamelessness, yet in another real way, you're already holy and blameless before God because you're in Christ. That's the how in that sentence. And that phrase, in Christ, or something similar, is actually used 216 times in the New Testament. It's not a passing or a toss-away phrase. It's a small phrase with a big punch. That to be in Christ means everything has changed. We emphasize that the gospel means change, which is right. But at the center of the gospel is more than change. It's actually an exchange of things. See, to be in Christ means an exchange has happened. That when Jesus died on the cross, As God and man, he didn't die for his own sins. He didn't have any. But on the cross, he died for your sins. And that's part one of the exchange. He took our sins and died for them on the cross. But he also, in his resurrection, for all who believe, they receive not just forgiveness, part one, but they receive Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, his perfect record so that you stand on Christ's record, not your own before God in the heavenly places. To be in Christ means you in the heavenly places before God himself already stand holy and blameless before him. That's the great exchange as Martin Luther taught it. The great exchange that helps us change, that makes us change, that motivates our change. See, your power to actually change in life on earth is coming from your standing before God right now. And you did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. It started from eternity past. Before you are even created, you couldn't impress God. He doesn't do it because, oh, if, if this person comes to Christ, then they'll be awesome. He doesn't do it for that either. You could be kind of like a pathetic Christian. You're not here to impress God. You're not here to win God's favor. In Christ, God has favored humanity. And every spiritual blessing, if you are in Christ, is yours. This is the mystical, wonderful, powerful part of Christianity, that the gospel actually saves us. It doesn't give us the opportunity for salvation, but it actually saves us From the inside out, it makes a dead heart come to life, as Ephesians 2 will teach so explicitly. And this news may feel too wonderful. It may feel too big. It's like, man, I kind of want, like, what's my part? It's like, our part is obedience. But it's God saving us from beginning to end. It's His strength. It's His power coming from eternity past. And the salvation is truly about what Jesus has done, not about what we have done. This is just part of the plan. And you may be tempted to wonder, well, God, why me? Why not him or her from from how I see? Why, Why am I chosen to be holy and blameless before you, not on the basis of my works, but yours? Why, God, why? And I've been there too. 
I remember it was a crisis of my life to start to ask like these big questions like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this, Lord? And I want you to take those doubts, take those fears, take those questions, but don't just take them into the void of life. Take them back to God. God's actually big enough and good enough and clear enough to actually speak to all of our questions. And the clearest part of the Bible we have is right here in Romans 9. Romans 9, speaking on this very topic, says this. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. Your salvation isn't on human will or exertion, but on God. On God who has mercy. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will the molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Our role in God's choosing, his saving from eternity past, is to realize we're the clay. We're not God's judge, but he sure is the judge. And he's a judge that saved us. And we should be amazed and thankful that God has saved us at the cost of his son. God isn't flipping about our saving at all. Instead, he bled out for it. That God's blood was shed for us, as Acts 20 says. That the God of the universe is not indifferent towards your destiny, but willing to die for it and die for you. Instead of questioning God, there's a humble road we can walk. And it starts with worshiping God instead. And that's where verses 5 and 6 take the reader. Look what it says. It says, in love. Why did God do this? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. There's a different way to go about thinking about salvation. And the right way starts with praise. It starts with acknowledging I don't deserve salvation at all. Instead, in love, God changed my destiny to bring them to me. He's came for you long before you ever looked for him. Jesus is coming like a comet to us and has come and saved and is worthy of praise for glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. The motive of God's saving gospel is love. In love, he destined us. And it's a one-way love. God doesn't need our affection. It's our joy to give God affection. And honor and glory is due to his name. If we can't do anything to earn our salvation, if we can't do anything to deserve God's love and salvation, then here's the good news, church. You can't do anything to lose it. If you can't earn salvation, you can't deserve salvation, then the good news is you can't do anything to lose it. Because if you could lose it, we would lose it. The purpose of God, even when we sin, we can always turn to the Father in repentance. Because look what it says in verse 5. It says that we're adopted. We are not guests in God's house. But God actually makes us family where we belong. It is not a shallow salvation, but rather a homecoming to us. 
that we belong to Jesus and we belong not because of what we've done, but what God has done. See, we brought sin to the table and God on his own initiative brought grace, the forgiveness and kindness and mercy of God. As sinners, we brought a knife to meet God. And Jesus hugged us anyways, taking the knife and saying, let's go on home. The purpose of God's will is that all creation would praise his glorious grace, that God in Christ, that God did not need to but wanted to die for sinners. And we notice how it says sons, plural, us, plural, we, plural. And it says together we are in the beloved. And the beloved is Christ, the Christ that loves us. If you wonder what the heart of the gospel is, it's talking about here that Christ loves sinners, that Christ loves his people, that Christ desires to be with his people and in a relationship that's like a marriage. In fact, that's what marriage points to, as Ephesians 5 will tell us. And love does something to us. It's not static. The exchange actually does change us personally, but it also changes us corporately. And this is what the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. often spoke about. It comes right from here. He called this vision of the beloved community, both as a vision for the church, but also the hope for our nation. Here's one excerpt as he shared about it. But the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. Our culture preaches tolerance. The Bible preaches friendship to flip an enemy from hate to love. The type of love that I stress here is not eros and sort of aesthetic or romantic love. It's not phile, the sort of reciprocal love between personal friends. But it is agape love which is understanding goodwill for all men, an unconditional, unbreakable type of love. It is an overflowing love that seeks nothing in return. It is the love of God working in the lives of men. And this is the love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. God's goal is not just you personal, though salvation is something you must repent and believe. It is also corporate, that we are being saved to a common Jesus or a common Father and being bound together, not just hypothetically in global Christianity of all time, which is true, but also locally right here. See, God's gospel is forming and fueling a reconciled multi-ethnic church that's God's plan from eternity past. Because here's the truth. Ephesus was a multi-ethnic city too. Ephesus, Antioch, these early churches were multi-ethnic churches of Jewish heritage people and then Gentile heritage, which is to say people from every nation coming together, not because they have a ton in common personally, but because they have a common Jesus who's brought salvation an ability to forgive, ability to reconcile, ability to befriend, ability to trust, past worldly lines, past evils done in the past, and past evils done in the present to actually work through and forgive one another. And we share the same gospel today here at Citizens. And the gospel is key to creating this beloved community, which is the church. I'm so thankful for how God has grown us 
a multi-ethnic church so far, but I am so excited about the next steps. I'm excited about the work ahead. I'm excited about the repentance ahead. I'm excited about receiving from God and continuing to move ahead as that is part of God's plan from eternity past to now. God's love motivates us to be reconciled across every line that sin has made in between people. And the gospel works like this. It's love on display for the universe to praise Jesus. Verse 7 tells us this. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things on heaven and things on earth. It is Jesus' blood, church, that redeems us from the slavery of sin to be in Christ. It's Jesus' blood that forgives our trespasses, the breaking of God's law, where we don't get placed in jail, but we get placed in Christ. See, God isn't stingy with grace, but instead rich and lavishes grace upon us. And God uses a word like lavishes because his grace is so big, it isn't running dry. It isn't running out. When you sin, there's more grace for you. As the morning dawns, the mercies are new. The grace is never going to run out. It's a fountain that's never going to run dry. God is saying all the universe should praise Jesus because grace is coming from this man by his sacrifice and what it means for us. The gospel of grace moves us with purpose. It's a mystery revealed that God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth to Christ by his gospel. God's bringing lost people, sinful people home to him as redeemed sons and daughters. That's our story. God's binding up the wounded, the poor, the broken, the struggling, giving the vulnerable a safe, a safe home. That's our story too. He's bringing us into relationship with one another by forgiveness and love. That's what the gospel does. The gospel's building local churches all over the world to give a taste and a sign that this is what heaven's like and this is where we're going. A love that can conquer hate. A love where reconciliation is possible. A love where friendship can be real. A love where trust can happen again. A love where we can risk for God's mission together. And it's okay to fail and it's okay to win. The key is the gospel makes us saints. And God does this by adoption. Verse 5 mentioned how adoption works, but personally, I never understood adoption in a deep way until I walked through it with a friend. He and his wife were trying to adopt a child named Ilya from a country that was under-resourced under its orphanages. Ilya was a young child. He was in a real tough spot. He needed life-saving heart surgery or he would eventually die. It's a surgery that was easily obtainable in the United States, but was not going to happen as an orphan in his country. This couple, they prayed, they planned, they asked counsel, and ultimately they chose Ilya before they ever met him. 
before he could do anything to win their favor or charm them. They visited multiple times halfway across the world, befriending young Ilya with visits and gifts and pictures and affection as their relationship slowly grew. They raised money. They made a plan for years in love to bring him into their family. And they desired to save him also from certain death. And finally, the last trip came. Years in the making. The day finally came to walk out of the orphanage with their son forever. A new family member and a new family formed. And Ilya was confused but happy. He was still at a young age to comprehend all the things that were happening so fast. And as they literally walked out, they stopped in the bathroom near the gate to help him change into his new clothes. His bright, clean, fresh out the bag clothes to be a member of their new family and to take off what were older, handy-down clothes of the orphanage. And things started to unravel emotionally. The news were new and bright and clean and a gift. But Ilya was scared to wear his new clothes. He had never worn a new pair of clothes in his entire life. And sure, the clothes were better. But the clothes were different. And different can be hard. Scary. To leave the old clothes, the old handy-downs were all he ever known, and his tears started to flow. This little boy in the bathroom. He struggled to remove his old clothes and step into his new ones. And his parents didn't grow frustrated. They didn't grow angry. They just felt their new son's hurt of all the pain and change that was happening and hugged him and helped him and helped him work through what it would be like to wear new clothes. They helped him learn to wear his new clothes and belong to their family on paper, but also in presence, what it meant to belong in their home forevermore. And church, I want to ask you, maybe adoption's just now coming home of what that means. Church, do you struggle to wear the new clothes of this sainthood? Do you struggle to wear the new clothes of what the gospel has bought for you? Do you struggle to put on Christ and to live as an adopted son of daughter as you are now that you're in Christ? I think many of us cling on to our pre-Christian life, cling to our old patterns of sin because it feels easier to keep wearing the old clothes than to actually don the new ones than to accept you're truly loved, that you're part of a new story, part of a new family with God. See, Ephesians 4 puts it this way, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Church, will you wear your new clothes? If you're struggling to break from old patterns, I want you to hear me clear. That God isn't leaving you. Just like his parents of Ilya, he's right there with you. 
He's not chastising you because you're struggling. He's helping you put sleeve in the arm, leg in the pant, to learn to live as His son and His daughter forevermore. In fact, this is a church full of adoptive brothers and sisters. And the Christian life is learning to wear our new clothes together. We're all learning to wear new clothes. To start to live from our identity that we're actually saints. Beloved by God. Holy and blameless before Him. Church, will you believe you're a saint? Chosen by God to be holy and blameless? We believe that in love, God changed your destiny to be a part of his family and saved you from certain death. We believe that Christ has redeemed you. That those sins actually were washed away as far as from the east is from the west. We believe you're the first part of uniting all things to God himself for eternity future. We can be the beloved community. Not because we have it all together or we do all the right things, but because of God's great love for us, the beloved. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 